Well, take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, Genesis is just a few pages in. Genesis chapter 2, the chapter numbers are the bigger numbers and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. And we'll be in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3. I do appreciate Jeff Sherman preaching for me last week while I was away. Back in the fall, uh, one of those kind of perfect storms happened to where uh, opportunity came to go to a conference in California and to go to another conference in Washington, D.C., kind of back-to-back and back-to-back weeks. And of course, when you're months out, you're like, ah, that that won't be any really, any big deal. Um, But then, so the the last two weeks I've been kind of grueling. Uh, Once I get back from California, I brought Bethany and the girls down to Rhode Island and then up to the airport in Boston uh, and then came home and then went to D.C. the next day. So it's been a crazy couple of weeks, uh, but I'm very thankful to have gone to these conferences. Um, It was a good opportunity to go and learn. And I'm looking forward to seeing uh, just fruit born in my own life as a result of going. But then in terms of our church, that fruit would be born uh, within our church as well as a result of um, being benefited. Um, But since January, we have been going through a sermon series on the book of Genesis. The last few sermons from the series could really be their own series. If you remember, we were going through that short image of God series, thinking through what the Bible has to say on various subjects in regard to the image of God. So subjects like homosexuality and transgenderism, uh, subjects like race, um, and then abortion. And those are all on our our webpage if you'd like to go back and listen to those if you had missed any of those. But I'm excited this morning because we're getting back into our text of Genesis specifically. uh, Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3. And I need to mention from the outset that this is a passage that it would be very easy to, to look at briefly and then to move on. And that's one of the, the things I thought about even a couple months ago when I thought about Genesis 2. I thought, okay, I'll touch on this and then I'll run to other passages. And so one of the things that I've really had to do is, is pull the reins a little bit and to think through this passage. And so this morning we will end up going to a couple of other passages, but I want to sit within this passage and to really marinate in it a little bit. This concept of the seventh day, all of this has been discussed heavily over the last couple of thousand years within the church. But one of the things that we need to be sure to do is give this passage its due, to mine it for all that we can, and to see what God has to say for us this morning. So I want to begin by showing you uh, the first verse of the chapter and making a few comments on it. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. This is what Moses says under the inspiration of the Spirit. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So this is a summary statement. If you look at that verse, it's it's summarizing what has already happened. Moses, our author, is summarizing the previous six days within this statement. And so creation is done. Creation's finished. God has done all of the work. And you can see within that verse that it's that simple distinction that we've seen before. The distinction between the heavens and the earth. God created the heavens and the earth. But then he attaches attaches to it all of the host of them. And so God didn't just simply create the heavens and then create the earth. He created the heavens and then he filled it with a host. He created the earth and then he filled it with a host. He filled the heavens with the sun, moon, and the stars. And he filled the earth with its animal and plant and human life. But this first verse of chapter 2 connects well with even the very first verse of the Bible. Why don't you turn back a page into Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. You know this verse well. 
says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you can really look at these two statements in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 2, verse 1, you can look at them as bookends to the creation week. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, essentially, the heavens and the earth were finished. It was all created. It was all done. The heaven and the earth, the seas, all that was teeming in the sea and on the earth, it was all done. Remember that on the first day, God created the earth. He created the space. He created time and light. The second day, God created the atmosphere. The third day, God created the land and the plants. The fourth day, God created the celestials, like the sun and the moon and the stars. On the fifth day, God created the sea animals and the birds. On the sixth day, God created the land animals and Adam and Eve. And like we had talked about those weeks ago, and to uh, rehearse this a little bit, all of this was done on six normal 24-hour days. The hand of God bringing to pass what He set out to bring to pass. We worship and we enjoy a great Creator God who did all things well, who created everything in the space of six days. Even now, don't we enjoy the beautiful creation? Don't we live and enjoy and work and rest and worship in this beautiful place? But Moses continues this idea of God completing His work into verse 2. Look there with me in the first part of verse 2. He says, And on the seventh day... God finished His work that He had done. So this is the first major heading that I want you to see this morning. You can follow along on the back of your bulletin. Uh, But God completed His work. This could be a little bit confusing in regard to the language. And it is kind of confusing. It almost sounds like God is, is finishing up His work on the seventh day. Maybe tying up some loose ends. But we know that His work has already been completed. We see that in verse 1. And that the seventh day would specifically be a day of rest. And that God would bless it and He would sanctify it. Yet there are a couple of things that I'd like to note further about God completing His work. I think there are a couple of errors that this verse, these verses really help us to fight against. And the first error is this. Deism. Deism really was a wildly popular notion around the founding of our country. Uh, men like Thomas Jefferson were deists. I think we often have the idea that everyone was like a born-again Christian at the founding of our country and that they believed all the things like we do. But Thomas Jefferson ripped out portions of his Bible um, and didn't believe the miraculous. He was, he was a deist. He believed that there was a God, but the illustration that's often given is that God is this great cosmic clockmaker. That God creates this great clock of the world. He, he winds it up. And then he just kind of sets it in motion. But from that point on, he just becomes relatively uninvolved. So the first six days, the seventh day, he he, he has made his clock. He has wound it up. He's let it go into motion. But other than that, he's relatively uninvolved. But just because God was finished with creating doesn't mean that he was finished with his creations. So God doesn't complete his work and then just let it fly. He doesn't complete His work and then back away, never to return to it again. No. God remains the sovereign. God remains the king. He he completes it, but He remains sovereign over it. There's nothing within His creation that He does not manage or sustain. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 1 that He holds all things together by the word of His power. 
That the very chairs that you're sitting on right now, why are all of those molecules sticking together and staying together? Because everything is being held together by the word of his power. If Jesus said the word, you would all fall to the ground right now. God, as the creator, is inseparable from his creations. So although we understand that God finished, it doesn't mean that God was done with us. In fact, the rest of the Bible plays out the fact that God would be intricately involved with us. That he would be intimately and providentially involved in our lives. But there's another error that I think this helps to to keep us away from. And that is evolutionism. The notion that things evolved over time on a macro level. Again, that the slime jumps out of the puddle, becomes a frog, becomes something else, and on and on. And then you have humans, a rhinoceros, and dinosaurs. That this macro evolution where, where God needed some sort of millions and billions of years in order to make things happen. And in terms of the Bible, that's just lunacy. The text is clear that in the beginning God created. He created on those days. He created, created fully formed creations. So when God created a tree, it was a tree. When God created animals, they were full-grown animals. When He created Adam and Eve, they were full-grown humans. It was a complete, it was a finished creation. Things didn't need the millions and billions of years to evolve. The text says that He finished, that it was done. Didn't need a bunch of time in order to evolve into what they eventually became. So billions and millions of years were not needed to incubate His creations to make them what they are today. Humans did not evolve over time from monkeys to humans. God simply spoke and he made things happen. It was finished. And so God completed his work. But I want you to see the second part of verse 2 where we see that God rested from his work. Look at the second half of verse 2. And he rested on the seventh day from all his works that he had done. So God rested from his work. The spring and summertime are coming. Uh, I think there's some optimism in the air, right? This morning when you went outside, maybe things weren't fully frozen. You stepped on a puddle and you kind of cracked through it. Uh, On Friday morning, the FedEx guy came to my house when it was like that snow and then it turned to rain. It was a miserable morning. And he's out there getting all wet. And I'm thinking, he's got to be miserable. I was like, man, lovely weather we're having. And he's like, oh, well, it's spring. He was happy about it. Like, oh, it's a great day, right? You mail carriers, you're all that way, right, Daryl? Yeah, that's right. But the spring and summer, they're coming. And having spent some time in, in California, I know suffering for the Lord in 65 degrees, it was, it was really hard um, some of the time. But, but I've seen spring. There, there are things that are growing in other parts of the country. In California, there is growth. When I was leaving D.C., those blossoms, those cherry blossoms, were starting to pop out. The spring is coming. But one of the things that comes with warmer weather is work. Spring cleanup. Chances are your yards are a little bit like the churchyard right now, filled with ruts. Maybe you have sand in your lawn from the plow or areas where the plow chopped up your lawn a little bit. And in the next few weeks, after a full week of work, you'll spend a Saturday or two getting things cleaned up. And so after five days of work, you'll spend all day Saturday, and then you'll probably take a shower, you'll put up your feet, and then you'll rest. You're tired. You've just worked six full days, and now it's time to rest, to close your eyes, to take a load off. But is that what's happening in verse 2? Is God taking a load off? Of course not. 
As one author said, he rested only in the sense that he ceased from his work. God may have shifted in terms of, okay, he's created, but he's shifted to now his, his providential sustaining care over everything. So he rested in that he ceased from his work, he stopped his creative work, he finished it, and then he ceased from it. He rested from it. Brothers and sisters, do you understand that you serve a God who does not sleep? You serve a God who does not need rest. He doesn't need a moment and have a Gatorade or a water. It seems as though a lot of people, their concept of God is so small in the church and outside of the church that God is simply a bigger, better, human-like sort of figure. That God is really just this big man in the sky. He's got a big white beard, some sort of demigod or something. And on a really busy day, God likes to kick back with a lemonade and relax. But this could not be further from the concept that the Bible gives us about our God. He's God. He is the sovereign creator, sustainer, controller of the universe. And He does not tire. He does not need downtime. He never needs a moment to Himself to recoup. The Bible's clear. Psalm 121 and verse 4. Behold, He who keeps Israel, God, will neither slumber nor sleep. He's omnipotent in regard to His power, meaning that He is all-powerful, that God does not yawn. God does not tire. He is at full maximum power and glory and holiness and knowledge and love, and He never drops down from maximum power. He's always at full throttle. Every one of God's attributes is always up there. It never ebbs or flows. And I think that this should be really encouraging for the Christian Now, one of the things we were talking about in Sunday school this morning was this concept of sin, the sinfulness of sin, and how so often when we sin, don't we struggle to wonder if God loves us anymore? I've just created this, I've just committed these grave sins. Does God love me anymore? Brothers and sisters, God's love for you never ebbs or flows. God's love never comes down from full throttle. God's power, it never wavers. God's glory never wavers. God's knowledge never wavers. He knows everything. He will always know everything. There's nothing right now that He will ever learn. He knows it all. He will never get more glorious than He already is. He will never love more than He already loves. He is always at full capacity. The prophet Isaiah underlines this for us. He says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Those are great questions, aren't they? Have you not known? Have you not heard? Our Lord is the everlasting God. He's the creator. He doesn't faint. He doesn't grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. You can hook up a search engine like Google to God and you cannot exhaust Him. You cannot type in a few words and see what Google has to say on God and and get to the bottom of the pages. Our God is inexhaustible. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. This is our God. This is the God we come together and gather together to worship this morning. And so He rests. But insofar as He ceases from His labors... The third thing I want you to see from our text this morning is that God blessed and hallowed the seventh day. 
And so he completed his work. He rested and ceased from his work. But then he blesses and he hallows the seventh day. Look at verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Isn't it interesting that God says that he blessed this day? He blessed the seventh day. But has that word blessed been used in the Bible up until this point? We're only in the second chapter. Has this verse been used? It has been. Why don't you look at chapter 1 again in verse 20. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And here it is. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters of the sea, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Now look down in in Genesis 1, verse 27. He blesses something else. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living thing, every living thing that moves on the earth. So in terms of blessing, God had blessed the creatures of the water and the creatures of the air. And he tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he takes man and woman and he says, I'm going to bless you as well. And you need to be fruitful and multiply. And what you need to do is you need to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over all of the animals, all the birds of the sky and so forth. But in chapter 2, verse 3, we have God not blessing a group of animals or humans. He is blessing a day. This idea of blessings is pretty trivial in our day today. When you sneeze... And somebody says, bless you, right? But they aren't really conferring any real blessing onto you, are they? Or in the South, a lot of times you'll hear people say, bless your heart. But they're not really, they're not really blessing you, right? Yet here, God is blessing this seventh day. Haven't you ever wondered when, when Esau comes in and, and Jacob goes in to their father, Isaac? And he blesses Jacob instead of blessing Esau. And to me, it's like, you bless the wrong son. Why can't you just take it back? Right? I'm just going to take that blessing back, and then I'm going to put it onto Esau. But that's not what happens, is it? Jacob ends up being the blessed one. And God was going to take Jacob, and he was going to make Israel out of him, right? But Esau, he would still be blessed, but not to the same level as his brother Jacob. And that's interesting to me that this concept of blessing is very deep and very rich in the concept of the Bible. To bless somebody was a very important idea. That this would be, the seventh day, would be a day of blessing. But then the next thing that verse 3 shows us is that God makes the seventh day holy. This is the first time the word holy is used in the Bible. And when something is holy, there's there's a distinction there, right? There's a distinction between the common and the sacred. I used to work at a tool warehouse down in Rhode Island where I was affectionately known as Holy Roller. 
this one guy all the time, hey, holy roller, hey, holy roller, hey, holy roller, all the time. But even in that, even, I know he's making fun of me from his perspective, but even in that, despite his attempts to make fun, there was a fundamental way in which I was set apart from those guys. Just in the sense of being a Christian, I was different from other people. And God takes the seventh day here and, and he separates it. He, he makes it holy. He sanctifies it. He, he elevates it from the rest of the days. That this would be a day that was different than the previous six days. However, this whole question of the seventh day comes out throughout the rest of the Bible, isn't there? That although in a few verses this morning, in these few verses this morning, there is no reference to Adam. Do you see the word Adam in those three verses? Or Eve? Do you see any command given to Adam or Eve within those verses? There's nothing there. Those three verses that we've looked at so far are all about God. They tell us what God did. All of these verbs apply to God. That God ceased from His work. He finished His work. He blessed the day. He sanctified the day. All of these verses and all of the verbs within the verses have to do with God. But I want you to take your Bible and turn it to Exodus chapter 20. Again, if you're new to the Bible, the book of Exodus is just the next book over. Genesis, Exodus. And we'll be in chapter 20. And we'll look at verse 8. And this, is, this chapter is famously the Ten Commandments chapter. Where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. So Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. God's Word says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male, your, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Now listen, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So you notice his command to remember the Sabbath day is coupled with our text in Genesis chapter 2. And this would be continual for them. That they were in the wilderness when they were receiving this command. They had not entered into the promised land. They had not entered into Canaan. This was all given to them decades before then, and they were to rest from all of their labors. You work six days, you take the seventh day off. Just as God ceased from His work, they were to cease from their own work. And so God gave His people a set-apart time, set time to rest, to rest from their work, to pull away from the mundane, to set aside earthly things, to cease from that, and to worship Him, all of which being rooted in our Genesis 2 passage. Now, it's really at this point where, where we come to a, a fork in the road. On the one side, we could continue traveling down this concept of, do Christians now, under the new covenant, are we commanded to take one day in seven to set aside for worship to God? We could, we could go that way. And that's a profitable discussion. And um, community group leaders, I think that'd be a good thing to discuss when you're in your community groups. But I want to take the other road. Because our passage this morning in Genesis 2 has been quoted in Exodus 20, but it's also quoted somewhere else, and that's in Hebrews chapter 4. So I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4.
I used to try to limit how often I, I made you turn to passages, but I'm done doing that. You need to turn to passages. You need to know where they are in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 4. And we'll look at verse 1. This is what Matt read for us. Therefore, and try to follow the argument as he's going through this. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what he's talking about so far is he's talking about them, they, the people of Israel. And in Psalm 95, it explicitly makes this comment, they shall not enter into that rest. That God's wrath would be against them. Remember, after the people of Israel sinned, God said, you're not going into the land from that generation on. Except for like Caleb and Joshua, right? That they would go into the land, lead the people into the land. But the Israelites before then, the other generations, they were all going to die in the wilderness. Because why? Because of their unbelief. So verse, verse 3 again. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And this is, this is our Genesis 2 text. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. So he's, he's reiterating Psalm 95. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So they enter into this land, right? Eventually, Joshua brings them into the land, but he speaks of a future rest. That Canaan wasn't going to be it. The land of Palestine, Israel. That that land wasn't going to be it. There's something else. There's another day coming. There's more rest. There's better rest coming. Verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So verse 10, whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his works. Genesis chapter 2. The author of Hebrews is drawing a parallel between the people of Israel entering the rest of Canaan under the Old Covenant and those now who are entering into the rest of God, into God's rest. But he says in verse 2 that the good news came to them, came to the Jews, but they did not enter into the land because of disobedience, which he mentions in verse 6, that they did not obey, that they hardened their hearts in disobedience. But he says that those of us who have believed have entered into the rest. That verse 4 specifically hits our Genesis passage when he says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. 
And this is ultimately the goal and the hope for all people everywhere. That they would not harden their hearts like the people of Israel. That they would not be like Israel and harden their hearts and not enter into God's rest. The, the spiritual Canaan. The place that we all must be if we're going to have true and genuine rest. And that if we would though, if we would soften our hearts and if we would enter into the rest of God, then we can rest for our, from our own works. We can rest from our works and we can trust in His. Whoever entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. The way to God and the way to enter into his rest is never going to be through your own good works. There are so many people professing to be Christians who are depending upon their own works, but works cannot get you to God. And not to be too graphic, but the Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And the underlying indication there is your righteousness is as menstrual rags. It is that graphic. That is the intention. That is what our righteousness is like. On your best day, your righteousness is as filthy rags. Your good works cannot get you to God. Many Mainers are moral people. They work hard. They provide for their families. They're good wives. They're good husbands. They have good kids. But no amount of goodness in and of yourself can bring you to the rest that God provides. You cannot sit back after a good week of good deeds and to kick your feet up and say, you know what, if God took me right now, I'd be all set. No amount of goodness. There's no rest for those who are dependent in their own good works. Think about Adam and Eve who were created on the sixth day of the week. They're the final piece. They're the the pinnacle They're made in the image of God, the one who made them. And when Adam opens his eyes for the first time, when Eve opens her eyes for the first time, all of the work is done. It's all finished. They didn't get to see how the animals in the seas and the dry land were all formed. God didn't create humans and then put them to work and say, okay, I need you to make a chicken right now, or I need you to help me make these plants. No. Adam opens his eyes as a new creation and all of the work is done. And my friends, this is not unlike those of us here whom God has made new creations. That there was a day in the life of every genuine Christian where God opened our eyes as new creations. He breathed spiritual life into us and the work was already done. We opened our eyes and we looked back to Jesus and he already did it all. You think of this wonderful creative work and between verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, we essentially see God cry out, it is finished. And Adam would open his eyes and see all of this glorious, pristine creation. But when we consider our spiritual lives this morning, God opened our eyes and has given us spiritual life. He did all of the work. He secured our salvation. Friend, has God opened your eyes? Have you looked back to the cross and seen it not just as a historical event, but as something that has been applied to you? That when Jesus died on the cross for sin, that he died for your sin, and he rose for you, and he ascended into glory, and he is now even at the right hand of the Father pleading for you. 
Have you trusted in Christ, friend? Have you believed? Jesus came to earth. He lived perfectly on behalf of those of us who could not live perfectly. He died for sin. He rose again. And now he has ascended and is praying for us. And on the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. That the work had been done. And it is for us as Christians to live in light of Christ's work. It is for us to rest in God every single day. That every morning we wake up and we rest in Christ. We rest in God. That we have heard the bidding of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 that says, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Are you weary and heavy laden this morning? Are you tired of working your fingers to the bone in attempts to create a body of work that God might be impressed with? Come to Jesus, and in him you will find the rest that you're looking for. Let's pray.